You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. I want to begin this morning uh, by asking us a few questions of self-examination, just to prepare our hearts uh, for where we're going today. Uh, Questions that would be focusing around our desires, our goals, uh, our meaning, the purpose of our lives. You know, these are some of the biggest questions that you can be asking yourselves throughout your life, like the question of existence. You know, why, why am I here? What's all of this for? What's the ultimate meaning of life? What's my purpose? Uh, what should I believe in? What should I be doing with my time? What will truly fulfill all of my desires? I don't know if you can identify with some of those questions. I'm sure we all land there at some time in our life asking our questions about the deep things of reality. You know, when I was a kid, I remember playing uh, in a sandbox, uh, creating my own little world. I I had my Hot Wheels cars and my G.I. Joes and and Transformers, and uh, it was like I was pretending I was God, and I had my own little world, and I could control everything. I also remember looking up at the stars in the sky, and I would wonder about God and uh, the universe and, and reality and asking myself questions, what's all of this for? And I remember coming up with all kinds of silly ideas, uh, thinking that maybe the earth was like that, that Dr. Seuss book, right, where when Horton hears a who, right, that we're maybe this little microscopic speck of dust float, floating on a piece of fuzz with billions and billions of others as well. I would often think maybe all of this is just a big game between God and Satan. Whoever collects the most people wins. The questions of life and purpose and meaning is something that we are all confronted with at one time or another. The question of purpose and meaning. You find that especially when the big things happen in life, right? Some of the hard things And some of the great things, some of the great things like when you have a a precious little child, like we have a new baby in our church this week, Nana and Nathan had little uh, baby Nova, beautiful little girl, I got to hold her, and you're looking at this little precious life, and you're thinking about the big things when that happens as parents. Maybe you're also thinking of these things when life crisis comes your way, maybe you lose a job, you lose you lose. A relationship, you have health issues, or you're walking through the death of a loved one, or maybe you're just at the crossroads in your life, you're feeling lost, you're feeling unmotivated. You know, even as Christians, we can feel this at times, right? We can lose motivation, we can lose drive. Is that us at times? Well, maybe it's even more serious than that. Maybe you're feeling dissatisfied with your life, with your faith. Maybe you're beginning to disbelieve everything you once knew. Maybe you're disillusioned with God and you're confused with the whole thing. Well, today in the Gospel of Mark, as we look at chapter 8, verses 1 to 21, we're going to witness yet again another incredible miracle. And on the heels of this miracle, we're going to see how three different groups of people respond to the reality of Jesus Christ. And then we're also going to see how Jesus responds to them. And we're going to ask ourselves three questions about our own desires for purpose and meaning and what we're going to discover again. And what we need to be preaching to each other again is that Jesus is the only solution to our dissatisfaction. He's the only solution to our disbelief, and he's the only solution to our disillusionment. And so prepare your hearts for that. And we really need the Lord to help us to understand these things. You know, by his Holy Spirit, God sent us himself in the Spirit to comfort us, to illuminate the scriptures to us, to convict us of sin, and to show us the right way as we open his word before us. And so let's ask him for help this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you again uh, that we have the freedom to gather here today. 
we have the freedom to open uh, your word to mankind. The book that you have written to us, the book that is true, the book that is sufficient, the book that is inerrant, the book that is sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you, Lord, that, that your word pierces to the depths of our souls. It exposes uh, our sin. It exposes our need of you, and it reveals to us Jesus Christ. Without your word, we would not know Jesus, we would be left looking at the mountains, looking at creation, and being puzzled, knowing that there is something out there, but we can't know him. So Lord, thank you for your special revelation to us, and we gather today around that. We gather around your holy word. So we pray that the words that are on these pages would penetrate deeply. And would show us yet again and would restore us to the joy and the satisfaction that can only come through Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. So chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. And you're going to say, boy, that's a lot of text. I think we only did like six verses last week. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. In those days... When again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now there's more that we're going to read, but we're going to stop there right now and, and look at what we have here. Well, some of you may be thinking, well, we've already studied this before, where Jesus feeds thousands of people miraculously with a few fish and some bread. Did we already study that together? Yes. Wasn't this told already in the Gospel of Mark? Why would Mark be telling this story again? Is this some kind of a mistake or something in the Scriptures? Well, this is no mistake this feeding of the, the 4,000 people is extremely similar to the feeding of the 5,000 that we've already studied just back in chapter 6, not even that long ago. In fact, the stories are so similar that some scholars over the years have determined that this is a doublet. It's a parable retelling of the same story. And at first glance, you can see why they would think this. Both of these accounts take place in deserted places. Both emphasize Jesus' compassion. Both highlight the disciples' bewilderment as to how Jesus is going to feed the crowd. In both accounts, Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? In, in both, Jesus commands the crowds to sit down. In both, Jesus gives thanks. In both, the people eat and are satisfied. In both, there are plenty of leftovers. And in both, Jesus dismisses the crowd and then gets into a boat. These stories are so similar that initially it leaves you feeling like maybe this is the same event. And he's just telling it again. But as you look closer, as much as they are similar, they are also very distinct from one another. Let's have a look at that. The feeding of the 5,000 started with five loaves and two fish. The feeding of the 4,000 starts with seven loaves and a few small fish. Uh, these, these fish in the Greek are like small little sardines. Uh, in the first feeding, Mark records that 5,000 men 
were fed, which if you remember from that sermon, means there could have been over 10 or 12,000 people in total if you would include the women and children who would have been in tow. But in the second feeding, it says 4,000 people were fed. In the first feeding, the hungry crowd was only with Jesus for one day. In the second feeding, the hungry crowd was with Jesus for three days. In the first feeding, there are 12 baskets full of leftovers. In the second, there are seven. And when you look at the grammar, Christ's words appear in the third person in the first feeding, but in the feeding of the 4,000, it's written in the first person, meaning that Jesus plays a more active, directing role in this feeding. But out of all of the differences that we're seeing here, the biggest and most significant is that the first feeding happens among the Jews, and this second feeding happens among the Gentiles. Verse 1. In those days. Well, what does, that, what does that mean, in those days? Well, as we're in the context of the Gospel of Mark and we're walking through, those days are referring to where we just left off last week. After Jesus just healed the deaf and mute man, and then he got in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and he goes to the Gentile territory of Dalmanutha. Now, Dalmanutha was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which again is primarily Gentile territory. And so what we're seeing again is that this story, this account is taking place as Jesus is taking his disciples on an extended journey throughout Gentile territory, teaching and foreshadowing that the gospel is not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. I think we have a map there again showing us where they've been. So they went up to Tyre and Sidon, come around through the back, and now they start at the blue line is where, where they end up right now. It says Tel Hadar, but that's the same place that we are at right now where the feeding of the 4,000 takes place. And then we're going to follow those lines a little bit later as well. The gospel is not only for Jews, but it's for the Gentiles. That's the current theme that we're in in the book of Mark. The gospel is for the rest of the world. And so it is in Dalmanutha. In verse 1, we see at that place, there is a great crowd of Gentiles following Jesus. It's Gentile territory. And then in verse 1, it says, In those days when again, that's very, uh, that's very important, when again, so Mark is saying this story has already kind of happened once in the feeding of the 5,000. And again, Jesus is feeding a crowd again. Again, a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Because why? Because they've been with me for three days. And they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some have come from far away. And so we see that this crowd was following Jesus for three days, and now they have exhausted all of their resources. They are out of food, but instead of just giving up and going home, they just keep following Jesus. Their, their bellies would have been grumbling, but yet they don't leave. I don't know about you, but, but if I miss a meal or two, I am hangry. I am upset. I'm, I'm so hungry. You know, if I don't eat breakfast, if I don't have protein in the morning, by 11 a.m., I, I need something to eat right now. But this group of Gentiles, they were so infatuated with Christ. They're so entranced by who he is that they don't let a hungry belly get in the way. They press on through the natural pain of physical hunger and pursue the supernatural presence of Christ. They're hungry. Jesus knows that they're hungry, and Jesus knows hunger. He knows hunger well. Hebrews 4.15 says, In every respect, he has been tempted as we were. You remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he experienced the pain of hunger. Matthew 4.2, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. We need to remember this, the doctrine of of Jesus Christ in Christology, we have to remember his humanity. Right? He, was, he was 100% God, yes, but he was 100% man. And he experienced what we experience as humans with physical 
hunger, among many other things. And so knowing the pain of hunger, out of his great compassion towards these people, he decides to feed them. Mark 8, verse 4. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Remember, they're in, they're in a desolate wilderness. They're far removed from society. Some as far as three days away traveled to come and see him. They can't go anywhere. They can't skip down to the McDonald's. They can't call skip the dishes. They can't go anywhere to grab food. And so the disciples say, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And so, so for those of us who are following along in the Gospel of Mark, we're like, what are you talking about? Just two chapters ago, disciples, you knew how Jesus has done this before. Are you guys that forgetful? You've seen it all before. You watch these loaves and this fish uh, miraculously multiply in front of your eyes and feed thousands of people. So although we may be quick to think these guys are really dense and forgetful, and yes, they, they are slow to learn at times, just like the rest of us, there's absolutely no way that they've forgotten about the feeding of the 5,000. I think the best way to understand uh, this question of theirs is to almost see it in a bit of a sarcastic, tongue-in-cheek tone. Like, I wonder how these people can be fed as they kind of wink, wink, and look at Jesus. You know, they know exactly how Jesus fed those thousands. They would never forget that. And they know exactly how he can feed them at this time. I actually think that the question they're asking shows humility rather than it shows stupidity. It shows that they acknowledge that they themselves have absolutely no way to feed these people. They have no way to do that themselves. But it also shows that they're not presuming upon Jesus. And they're not demanding that he would perform a miracle to feed these people. I think it's showing humility. It shows that they're not trying to tell him what to do. They're not demanding Jesus to perform a miracle. It shows that they're, they're leaving it to him. And so, Jesus in his great compassion and power takes the seven loaves similar to the feeding of the 5,000, takes the seven loaves and a few small sardine-like fish, and he gives thanks to the Father, he blesses the food, and he miraculously, compassionately, abundantly feeds every single person. Until, verse 8 says, they ate and were satisfied. The Greek grammar here speaks of full satisfaction. Complete contentedness, fully fulfilled. These people had a great need, and Jesus greatly satisfies that need. And so as we look at this first set of people, the Gentiles, and we see how hungry they were, both physically and spiritually, and then seeing how Jesus abundantly satisfies their need, we need to remember our own tendency to be dissatisfied. Our own tendency to be discontent. Which leads to our first point. Do you want fulfillment? Do you want fulfillment? We need to remember our spiritual hunger. Again, every miracle in the Gospels has a temporary, immediate revelation of Christ's compassion towards people. But we also have to remember, again, that every miracle Jesus performed always speaks of more. They are living parables of greater eternal realities. And so this miracle of feeding starving, fainting Gentiles was written down by Mark for those who are going to hear what he has written and by extension to us. This compassionate miracle needs to remind us that the only fulfillment of our spiritual hunger 
The only eternal satisfaction for our starving souls can be fulfilled in Jesus Christ alone. In the Gospel of John, after Jesus fed the 5,000, the crowds kept pressing him for, for more and more. They wanted more bread. They wanted more food. And so Jesus responds to them by teaching them the greater eternal reality about the bread. John 6, verse 33 to 35, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. All this talk about bread points to the true and everlasting, satisfying bread of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, if you're dissatisfied with your life, if you're dissatisfied with your faith right now, if you've lost your motivation to persevere, if you're struggling with direction, if you're feeling empty inside, perhaps you've forgotten about the bread. Maybe you've forgotten how hungry you are. Maybe you've forgotten about how hungry you were. Maybe today you're feeling spiritually drained and exhausted. I read a really good blog post from a fellow pastor, friend of mine here in the city, Clint Humphrey from Calvary Grace. In fact, he's going to be preaching here in two weeks. Uh, and his blog this week was entitled, The Secret Many Christians Don't Want to Admit They're Fatigued. And in his blog, he went on to say that what he's seeing in his church, what he's seeing in other churches, is that Christians are increasingly becoming spiritually fatigued. Fatigued about church, about preaching, about holiness, about the grace of God. And so, let us ask ourselves, are we spiritually fatigued? Are we exhausted? And he argues that this fatigue that we are experiencing as Christians is extremely dangerous. He says, and it's on the screen behind me, when this fatigue sets into a person's life, it will start to justify itself by multiplying preferences. They might begin preferring different music, happier sermon themes, or an inclusive style of ministry. Yet this spiritual fatigue can also start to despair that anything can change. That that kind of fatigue will have low views of God. It won't see God's goodness, his power to change things, and his free desire to do his people good. The result is that spiritually fatigued persons will be tempted to give up. They will quit on God. They will quit on the church, friends, and spouses. If you're feeling that this morning, if you're spiritually fatigued, if you're exhausted in your faith, if you're dissatisfied with your life and with your faith, if you're thinking of giving up on your family, on your spouse, your church, or even God, the way back is remembering. Remembering how starving you once were. And remembering how fully satisfying Christ really is. The way back is remembering that we need to taste again and see again that the Lord is good. Like Psalm 84 too, my soul longs, yes, it faints for the courts of the Lord. That's spiritual hunger. Can anyone here agree that there was a time in your faith when you were more excited about your faith. When you were more hungry for the Lord. And by example of these fainting, hungry Gentiles, we need to remember our great hunger for God. We need to remember that before Christ we were weak. We were starving. We were without hope. That before Jesus Christ, we were trying to satisfy our highest eternal need with the lowliest of temporary pleasures. But the beauty of the gospel is this: as Jesus went to the Gentile land, Jesus came to us. 
He came to us in all of our spiritual impoverishment. And through his sacrificial life and death on the cross, he fully fills, he fully satisfies, and he will continue to fully satisfy you through your life as you remember your spiritual hunger. As we look at these people, when they ate, they were fully satisfied. Yes, that was a physical satisfaction, but it speaks of so much more. And there was so much more left over. They took up broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. It's not for lack of abundance. It's lack of remembering. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sends them away. And immediately, he gets into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, in the next section... In verses 11 to 13, we see another group of people responding to the reality of Jesus Christ, and we see an extremely different response from Christ. In the next section, in verses 11 13, we see another group of people responding, and Jesus is going to respond so much differently. Verse 11, the Pharisees came. So here we see Jesus arriving in Dalmanuth, back in Jewish territory. The Pharisees come and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat and went to the other side. So we, Jesus, we see Jesus coming uh, from the Gentile region, coming to the Jewish region, the Pharisees coming to him and arguing with him, and then Jesus now going back to the Gentile area. And so through this, we want to ask ourselves, do we want to believe? If we want to believe, we need to reject our spiritual skepticism. We see this so boldly and clearly in how Jesus responds to their skepticism, to their testing, how he responds to the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. As Jesus has been away for some time uh, in Gentile territory, consorting with the Jewish defiled enemies, their, their enemies, the Gentiles, the Pharisees' hatred for Christ would just be brewing all the more. And the moment that he lands back on Jewish shores, they pounce on him again. And they begin arguing with him. Even though, even though they've, they've heard about the countless miracles that Jesus has done, even though they've even eyewitnessed miracles happening or people that have been healed, they still choose not to believe Jesus as the Messiah. And so they ask for more. They ask for a sign. You see, the Pharisees believe that Satan and demons could do the same miracles that Jesus was doing. If you remember all the way back to chapter 3, in verse 22, the scribes uh, came down from Jerusalem and were saying about Jesus, saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. They were charging him with being of Satan. And so they weren't convinced by the miracles that he was doing that Jesus was the Son of God. They wanted more. And the text says here, they were seeking from him a sign, not just a sign, but a sign from heaven to test him. So they didn't want just some run-of-the-mill miracle of healing or deliverance. They wanted some kind of direct revelation coming from God, from the heavens above, the skies above, to test who he says he is. Because they were skeptical. They weren't believing. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. These Pharisees were the most self-righteous skeptics of Jesus Christ. And they remained that way throughout the rest of his life in ministry. They reject him at all costs. Their self-righteousness was blinding their eyes to the truth. 
even if there was a greater sign from heaven, these Pharisees would still have hated Jesus Christ. Because self-righteousness always rejects Jesus Christ's righteousness. The two cannot exist in the soul together. In fact, later in Christ's life, it seems like, it seems like the Pharisees believe somewhat that Jesus is from God. But yet they still reject him and kill him. By example, if Nicodemus in John 3, 2, he's, he approaches Christ and he says, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So at some level, some are believing that he comes from God. And so it wasn't a matter of a lack of evidence. It was a matter of, a, of spiritual blindness. No amount of evidence could break these hardened hearts. And so they were seeking a sign. Well, maybe in, in your life, you struggle with believing. Even as a Christian, we can be skeptical. I remember as a young guy being skeptical of God, wondering if he's really real. I remember hiking in the mountains and, and looking at all the creation, and it's beautiful, but then wondering, what's all of this for? Are these stories in the Bible really true? Did God really create all of this? I remember being on top of a mountain one time in, in uh, northeastern BC, our home area, and climbing upon a pile of rocks on top of a mountain and finding a rock with a seashell fossil in it on the top of a mountain. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, this is really true. The earth really was flooded at one time. How could this fossil get up top of this mountain? It had to be a flood. It has to be true. My faith got fired up a little bit because I found some hard evidence, something tangible, something like a sign proving that the Bible says that it is true, and it is true. If you think finding hard evidence would finally bring me to a place of believing, you're wrong. The truth was that it was short-lived. The sign of this fossil didn't change my life. It didn't give me lasting faith. I continued to rebel through my early life into my adulthood. As much as our flesh wants proof, our flesh wants signs straight from heaven. You ever, you know, you see that in the movies all the time. Lord, give me a sign from heaven. God, give me a sign. Then I'll believe. It's not about signs. Signs don't produce lasting faith. Signs can't change a self-righteous heart. A sign can't change skeptical ears and eyes. The fact is, Jesus rejects our desire for more proof. He, desires our de he, he rejects our desire for more signs. We see that in Mark 8, how he responds. Chapter 12, or verse 12. He sighed deeply in his spirit. This grieves him. He's, he's groaning here. The sighing is groaning. And he's groaning at the willful ignorance of mankind. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then poof, he gets up, leaves them, gets into a boat and goes to the other side. He rejects them. He rejects the Pharisees' self-righteousness, their skepticism, and he goes back to the Gentiles. So let me ask you, how's your belief going? How's your faith in who Christ says he is? Are you wanting some kind of sign? Are you waiting for some kind of sign so that you can believe? Are you second-guessing all the evidence in this book? That he is the only one who can save? Are the eyes of your heart blinded by your own self-righteousness? Are you disbelieving? 
One commentator says, Demanding sensational proof is not evidence of faith, but of doubt. To long for the visible sign, the big miracle, the dramatic proof, is nothing but masked unbelief. And it is the furthest thing from faith. Brothers and sisters, if you want to believe, you have to turn from yourself. You have to turn away from yourself Love, your own self-righteousness. You need to turn from your own desires for proof. You need to turn from that skepticism that's deep in your heart, and you need to ask the Lord to open your eyes to the truth. This starts by opening this book. This is the truth. Jesus doesn't need to prove anything to you. It's all been proven perfectly through a bloody cross. In an open grave. The proof is in. It's right here. Jesus is, is not dead. Jesus is alive. And he calls you to repent of your sin and to believe and trust in him alone for salvation. You know, even as Christians, we, we struggle to believe at times. Even the disciples had to ask for more faith. We have moments of, of doubt. And, and in some ways it should be expected. Because why? Because we still live in the flesh. We're still prone to sin. We sung this morning. We're still prone to, to wander. Lord, we feel it. But the way back is, is rejecting our own self-righteousness. Rejecting our own skepticism. You know, when Christians aren't feeding themselves upon the truth of God, when our minds are not being continually renewed, when we're running to the wisdom of the world, we're, when we're more prone to listening to, to lies rather than truth, it's no surprise that we'll have spiritual fatigue It's no surprise that we'll struggle with our faith, or struggling to believe. That's why it's so crucial to have a steady appetite for God's word every day. We need to hear from God always. We need to be fed by the living bread every day or else we're going to starve and wander. Psalm 1 1 to 3, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And what's the results? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither in all that he does he prospers. Friends, if we firmly plant ourselves in the Word of God, the Holy Spirit produces roots that will not fail. And so with that question, when we're asking ourselves, do I really want to believe? We need to start by rejecting our spiritual skepticism. And we need to run to the everlasting evidence of the reality of Jesus Christ as revealed through God's Word. Are you dissatisfied? Are you disbelieving? And finally, are you disillusioned? Jesus and his disciples head back uh, to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And here we witness a final group and how Jesus responds to them. And that final group is his disciples. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. You've got to notice how bread is a re reoccurring theme in these three sections of Scripture. It's intentional. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned him, cautioned them, this is Jesus, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
You know, as Jesus often did, he takes this opportunity, uh, to, 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 this opportunity of bread and the forgetting of bread, and he turns it in an opportunity to teach his disciples. He's telling them to watch out. He's warning them to beware the leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees. He's, he's warning his disciples about the toxic influence of the Jewish leaders who hated Christ. And he's also teaching them of the temptation of the world all around them. You know, these Pharisees were, were masters, like we've already studied, of promoting a, a deadly legalism. Teaching that holiness is somehow earned and kept by outward cleansing. They were teaching self-righteousness. And if you remember, Jesus called them hypocrites. We also see Jesus warning them about the leaven of Herod, the ruler of the area of that time, and how he embraced Roman culture and how that Roman culture brings all kinds of temptations and influences into the disciples' life. Jesus is trying to teach, but his disciples are disillusioned. They're not picking up what he's laying down. They're not getting what he's talking about. Verse 16, they began discussing with one another the fact they had no bread. They completely missed the whole point about Jesus' teaching. In fact, it almost sounds like they ignore him here. I don't know if you ever have that when you're you're in a group of people, and they're all chatting away, and then you interject something that you think is really important, and they just kind of look at each other, and then they look at you mystified, and they just start talking about what they were talking about before. That's what seems to be happening here. The disciples completely miss the point, and they, and they keep on their stress and their worry about having no bread. Jesus, aware of this, says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Brothers and sisters, the disciples are disillusioned. They got their minds set on the material things of the world, not the spiritual things of Christ. As Jesus is warning them about dangerous spiritual influence, they thought he's merely talking about yeast, bread. They were slow to understand, just like us. We're slow to understand, right? It takes time to learn. They were complacent with the deeper things of God. They were so earthly focused that they were at this time of no heavenly good. And so Jesus rebukes them. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Do you have hard hearts still? Are you blind like those Pharisees still? Are you deaf like the world still? Do you remember anything at all? He's basically saying that they're acting just like the rest. And then he walks them through the two bread miracles, seeing whether they remember, whether they remember the details, whether they remember how the bread was miraculously created from the Creator. Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. They were answering correctly. They knew the details. They had the knowledge, but yet they were still disillusioned. They were still missing the whole point. And they were being entranced and captivated by worldly things. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Which leads to our final point. Do you want to understand? We need to repent of our spiritual complacency. So like the Pharisees, the disciples aren't grasping the full truth. Their eyes are still set on the things that are earthly, the things that they can touch, 
taste, and smell. They're still more worried about how to feed their stomachs when the creator of the universe is trying to feed their soul. Even after they've witnessed all of these miracles that Christ has done in front of their eyes, and even the miracles they perform by, by his hands. Their spiritual complacency reveals they still have much to learn. And as Jesus and his disciples just witnessed the tragic unbelief of the Pharisees, Jesus wants them to know that they're not immune from this as well. Living a complacent life, a complacent faith, lowers our guard against toxic influences. Disbelief creeps in when we're least aware. Disbelief comes in when you think everything's going fine. When you've lowered your guard, when you've relaxed your discernment. Spiritual complacency will eventually lead to disillusionment. Spiritual apathy will always lead to spiritual confusion. So if you approach your faith shallowly, if you approach it haphazardly, if you're uncareful with how you approach your faith, Jesus is warning us here that we may not be who we think we are. If we forget to set our eyes on him, our eyes will remain on the things here. Are we not perceiving are we not understanding? Are we still blind and deaf? Are our hearts still hard? Friends, we need this firm rebuke from Jesus. It's good for us. It's good to receive a rebuke from Christ. His disciples need it. They need their spiritual sense shook up a bit. But with the rebuke, we also see hope. These questions from Christ to his disciples are rhetorical. What he's saying to them in these rhetorical questions is, you are not these things anymore. So why are you acting like it? He's showing his disciples that this is not who they are in him. As followers of him, they are his. He has chosen them, and he is empowering them, and he is changing them. Their ears have been opened. Their eyes have been unblinded, and their hearts have been changed and are being changed. And they are able to understand because he is with them. They have the very presence of God with them in Jesus Christ. And they haven't been rejected like the Pharisees. Jesus is with them. He's teaching them. He's guiding them. They have no reason to be confused anymore. The living truth, the living bread, is with them. And that goes for us. If we are Christians, if we have turned away from our sinful lives, and we have trusted in Christ's righteousness alone for salvation. He's leading us. He has not left us. He's leading us. He's teaching us. He's guiding us into all truth, and we're not confused anymore. But yet, brothers and sisters in the faith deal with disillusionment and confusion all the time. Sometimes we get ourselves into a rut of despair. Sometimes we grow desensitized to the glory of God. Sometimes we grow numb to the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sometimes we forget the truth about the living bread. We get our eyes so focused on ourselves and on our earthly situations that we act as though we're blind and deaf to the truth. Sometimes our hearts don't seem as soft as they once were. Sometimes our spiritual thinking is dampened. Jesus says to us, do you not yet understand? 
Friends, Jesus Christ is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. He opens hearts. He opens eyes. He opens minds to the truth. He brings us to a place of understanding what's really real. In Jesus Christ, we don't need to be confused anymore. In Jesus Christ, we get to see clearly. But sometimes we fall back into the trap of disillusionment, but the way back is repentance. Repenting of our apathy. Repenting of our complacency. Repenting of our spiritual laziness. Repenting of looking to the world for help. Repenting of looking for the wisdom of the things that are here. Repenting of feeding ourselves with lies, seeking comfort and direction with the things of this world. You can't be found here. The world will always overpromise and underdeliver. We need to remember the bread. We need, we need to remember our living bread. As the disciples forgot the bread, as the, the Pharisees reject the bread, this speaks directly to us. Our answer, our hope, is by the leading and empowering joy of the Holy Spirit, by Christ's word, that we will remember the bread of life, that Jesus Christ is our bread. We need to be feasting upon him as revealed through his word, that he eternally satisfies our souls forever, and we will never be hungry anymore. Do you want fulfillment? Remember your spiritual hunger. Do you want to believe? Reject your spiritual skepticism. Do you want to understand? Repent of your spiritual complacency. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this large section of Scripture that is tied together by bread. And Lord, we thank you that you are the living bread. Do we not yet understand? Lord, we thank you that by your truth, by your spirit, we can understand you. Yes, in our fallen state, we cannot fully comprehend you right now, but what you have revealed is enough. It is full. It is overflowing. It pertains to all of life and godliness. What you have revealed is sufficient, and thank you for revealing your son to us, that we can have life in the living bread. Lord, we pray as we continue as a church that we would be a people who are feasting upon the bread of Christ, that we wouldn't be apathetic, that we wouldn't be lazy, but by your spirit, as you empower us, as you give us strength, would we be turning to your word and opening it before us and, and allowing the Spirit to use it to change us, to transform us, to change the way we think, to change our desires, and to change the way that we behave, all for your glory. Lord, we don't want to be Pharisees. We don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to be self-righteous. We don't want to be lost. We do want fulfillment. We want to believe. We want to understand and it's all found in you. Lord, thank you for speaking to us today by your word and using it to grow us for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.